Well, let's turn then uh, to John chapter 4 and to the uh, text that we began to look at this morning in verse 19. John chapter 4 and at verse 19. And just after the Lord opens out the sin in this woman's life, he opens it out clearly before her. She says to him, Sir, I perceive that you are a prophet. Now we're essentially just following on from where we were this morning. And you'll remember that the Lord begins to do what every prophet does. And that's to show people themselves and to show them God. That's really every prophet or even every preacher's duty. A preacher is not the same as a prophet. There are differences. But nonetheless, in that respect, that's what they are both to do. It's my duty to show you yourself and myself too, and to show you and myself God, both from the Scriptures. Now, as regards herself, he begins to bring home to her that she is a sinner. And he does that by focusing, first of all, on one particular sin in her life, which involved her relationships, the ones that she had and the one that she is now in. Now, I'm sure that she was aware at some point that these relationships were sinful, including the one that she is in at this time. It's quite clear that she knows something about God, that she has a conscience that is still functioning. But she chose this lifestyle, and invariably when we choose a lifestyle that we know deep down is wrong, we have to deal with that, because no one can really live, at least on this side of eternity, with a bad conscience. So normally we try to excuse the choice that we make and the sin that we choose. We say it's perhaps, well, not an important thing or it's an insignificant thing or God doesn't really care who I live with or uh, who I have relationships with. Things of that kind. Or we may even go further and just completely justify it and say that we are right in doing whatever it is we are doing, even though we know deep down that it is wrong. And these are just the schemes of the human heart, the fallen sinful human heart, because we have to find some way of coming to terms with our own sinful behaviour. So I have to say these are what the, what the prophet calls refuges of lies, because all these things will be swept away one day if, we're, if our eyes have not been opened and if we are not converted, if we don't come to the Lord, if we don't repent and find forgiveness, we'll discover that these refuges are refuges of lies and we will have to give account and suffer the consequences of the sins that we chose with our eyes wide open. But on this occasion, the Lord's opening up of her sin is accompanied with power. It's accompanied with divine power and she feels herself 
searched out as we all do when Christ opens himself out before us and begins to speak to our consciences. And she knows that the knowledge that he has of her is a God-given knowledge. You'll notice she doesn't ask him, how do you know that about me, being a Jew and seeing you here for the first time, how do you know these things about me? She doesn't ask that. Neither does she assume him to be some kind of magician. Neither does she ascribe his power or his insight to a devil, to the demonic realm or anything like that. In fact, she calls him a prophet. Now, as I mentioned in the morning and as the Bible makes clear, she has not yet recognized him to be the prophet. She doesn't know him to be the Christ, the Messiah of whom she speaks, and the one her ancestors were waiting for. She doesn't recognize that as yet, but she knows him to be a prophet, a true prophet. In other words, the knowledge that he has of her is God-given. She knows, like I said, that it's God who's exposing her. It's God who's confronting her. And, of course, it's a good thing for God to show us ourselves. That's a kindness and a mercy. The critical thing is, when he does that, to respond to it in the right way. And that is what she does. She responds to it in the right way. Essentially, she says here, if God is speaking to me, and if God is showing me my sins, then I need to find him. I need to know him, I need to call upon him, I need to worship him, I need to be reconciled to him, I need to find forgiveness, and in finding forgiveness, I'll find the water of life. And that's really what her question is about, because immediately after saying, I perceive that you're a prophet, she asks a religious question. Our fathers worshipped on this mountain, But you Jews say that Jerusalem is where a person ought to worship. Now it's actually easy to accuse her of using religious arguments here to justify the fact that she's not worshipping God. Now people do that. (laughs) People say things like, oh well there's too many gods, I'm not going to worship any or There are too many churches, so I'm not going to any church. There are too many disagreements about religious things, so I'm not going to believe anything about religious things. A plague on all your houses, and none of you can be right. So, picking up on things that are wrong, or obviously wrong, in connection with the worship of God, or with the name of God, and using that as a reason just to go on in your own sinful life. Now, There's no doubt that people do that all the time. I come across it all the time. I'm sure you come across it too. As though all that was somehow a a reason for you not finding the truth. As though someone else's misunderstanding about God was a justification for you not coming to an understanding about God. Or as though someone else's misuse of the Bible was a reason for you not to use the Bible. As though the existence of counterfeits justified you from not finding the original and the true and the pure. As though the truth about God couldn't be known. 
as though it was impossible to find your way to the God who was actually speaking to you and reaching out to you, and as we'll see in a minute, seeking for you. None of it is a reason. None of it is an excuse. According to that kind of understanding here, the woman is actually saying something like, I perceive that you're a prophet, but don't be too hard on me because people say we should worship here at this mountain. Other people say in Jerusalem, so I worship nowhere. Now, although I'm obviously critical of that, let me be honest and say that I can understand a lot of that. I can't help but look back at the history of our own nation and think that in the 17th century, for a time, for a good few years, there was so much that was right and good and true. There was essentially one church in Scotland, really. I shouldn't say just one. There was always an Episcopalian church, too, since the Reformation. But there was one Presbyterian church anyway. Let's put it that way. And since the mid-1640s, it was bound together by a, a confession of faith, one of the great Reformed confessions of faith that were produced throughout Europe and were essentially in harmony with each other, bound together by a great confession of faith and bound together by national covenants. And during that period when the church was committed and pure, united and wholehearted, wonderful things were done. And the Lord came down in power And there were many revivals and many tokens of goodness. And for a time it was wonderful to behold. And it's no exaggeration to say that in many parts of the world, even throughout Europe and elsewhere, Scotland was the envy. The envy of the world. Now you know as well as I do that that unity was shattered. And as always it's shattered by people who move away from the truth not by people who keep to it. It was shattered by those who decided either to change the doctrine of the church or to change her worship. Once that happens, there's fragmentation. But it's not the fault of those who wish to keep what they had. But that still doesn't absolve ourselves. Yes, it's true that we cleave to that confession. We cleave to the simple Reformation way of worship, which we believe is apostolic and biblical. But there are other bodies who do too. And is it right that we're apart from them? Is it right that they're apart from us? We may find ourselves now in separate groups, but why is that so? Surely it's the case that everyone who finds a rallying point in that ancient confession and covenant should gather around it again. And no amount of tradition or buildings or anything of that kind should keep that from happening. And that's why, although compromised churches are not good, neither are churches that are apart from each other for no good reason whatsoever. If our doctrine is the same and if our worship is the same, let's not be apart even if in some things we disagree, because we will never see eye to eye on everything until a great day comes. But none of that is an excuse for you or for me. If you're to say today, well, there's several churches around here, I've no idea what to do, well, just open your Bible. God's there and he's to be found. 
and God will be found by those who want to find him. If your heart is longing to know God and longing to have a relationship with God and the sense of your sins forgiven and a new life, he's there to be found. It's not as though the truth is so obscure and so difficult that it cannot be understood. Call upon the Lord and ask him to enlighten your mind in the reading of the Bible and in the preaching of the Bible and that light will come. Just come openly, humbly and honestly to God and he'll teach you the truth. The main things that you need to know regarding himself and how he is to be worshipped. Now, before I, I really go into what the Lord says to this woman, can I just maybe go back to something that I said, I think, the first time we looked at this passage. And that's just to give ourselves a very brief reminder of what this woman's religious situation and background is. Very brief because we looked at it already. This woman, obviously, from what she says herself, is actually a genuine Samaritan, in the sense that she hasn't immigrated or settled there, or her people settled there, but she can trace her lineage right back to Jacob. I don't mean uh, that she can name each person, but she knows that that is her ancestry, that's her descent. Now, the ten northern tribes were settled in Israel, Two tribes were settled in Judah. There was a division, of course, uh, after the kingship of Solomon. You had Israel in north, Judah in the south. Judah stayed faithful for a long time. Israel did not. If you read the books of the kings, you'll discover that Israel really fell away from the Lord quite quickly and very far. And in 722 BC, the Assyrian king took the ten northern tribes captive. And because he wanted that to be a finished event, um, with the people never coming back, he forcibly colonised the northern part, the part that became known as Samaria. It was colonised by mixed races from everywhere. Of course, as always happens in situations like that, you still had a small number of the original people left. These were usually poor people. Um, They were just left here and there. But by and large, the bulk of the people are settlers, mixed people, at least seven religions, and probably just as many languages. But amongst them was still this core group who would still identify with the worship of Jehovah. Now, much of their worship is wrong. Much of their understanding is wrong. Like I mentioned last time, they only accepted the first five books of the Old Testament. That's all, what we know as the Pentateuch. They had set up their own priesthood. Uh, They didn't follow the divinely ordained priesthood that was in the south. 500 years before the days of Christ, they tried to integrate with the Jews, but the Jews rightly said, we're not going down that path again. That's what got them into trouble, remember? The Jews had to go for 70 years captivity into Babylon because their own religion had become polluted by mixing it from what came from the north, which which came from outside. So they said to the Samaritans, no thanks. The Samaritans built their own temple on the mountain just beside where Jesus and this woman are. On Mount Gerizim, the Samaritans built their own version of the temple 
where they worshipped God, the Lord, Jehovah. Everyone else around him, them were worshipping other gods, but at least they retained the worship of this God, but not with intelligence, not with real understanding, with a mutilated Bible, doing some things right and doing some things wrong. And of course there are people around who are saying actually we should really be worshipping the way God wants us to worship in Jerusalem. Others are saying no, we'll just stay right here and worship where our fathers worshipped. Of course their original fathers didn't but that tends to get lost. You hear people say things like I'm going to worship in the church where I've always worshipped. Where my fathers worshipped. And of course maybe their fathers didn't. Maybe their fathers came from elsewhere but these things tend to get lost. People very quickly become traditionalists in church matters. Very, very quickly they become traditionalists. But this woman has a genuine question. And I'm not going to say that this woman is making an excuse here. She has a genuine question. You've shown me my sin. I accept it. I see it and I accept it. And I want to do something about it. And I know I need to go to God with it. But where do I do to go to God with it? And how do I go to God with it? These are confusing matters. We have to acknowledge that. Let's see how Christ responds to it. And that's the critical thing. The Lord is dealing with a soul here. And when he's dealing with a soul that's looking for himself, he deals tenderly and graciously. And I think to appreciate what the Lord says, with all due respect, I think we need to some extent to take it apart a little bit and to piece it back together again. Just to really get the thread of what the Lord is saying. Perhaps it would be helpful just to read the verses again. In verse 21 through to 24, let's just read it carefully. Woman, believe me, he says, the hour is coming when you will neither on this mountain nor in Jerusalem worship the Father. You worship what you do not know. We know what we worship, for salvation is of the Jews. But the hour is coming, and now is, when the true worshippers will worship the Father in spirit and truth, for the Father is seeking such to worship him. God is spirit. And those who worship him must worship in spirit and truth. Now, let's just perhaps begin at the end and more or less work our way back. Let's start first with the great truth of verse 24, that God is spirit. Now, I suppose we all understand if we have some understanding of the Bible and of God, we immediately and instinctively know what that means. God is a disembodied intelligence. We know this disembodied intelligence to also be infinite uh, and to be eternal and to be unchangeable in its nature. We know that. But when the Lord emphasises that, He emphasizes it for a reason. He's wishing to highlight to this woman that whatever role buildings and temples may play, and however important they might be, and however much God would want us at any given time 
to attend one and to worship and to sacrifice there, on, on, in no way can they be considered as defining who God is or confining God to that space in that point of time. Heaven is my throne, Isaiah 66, and earth is my footstool. Where then is the temple that you will build for me? On this person I will look, the one who is humble and of a contrite spirit, and one, of course, who trembles at my word. As far as worshipping in the temple goes, if that heart and spirit is not right, then to kill a bull is... Uh, like killing a dog, or to offer a grain offering like offering swine's blood. The, the things can be right formally or externally, but I don't accept them, because I am spirit, and I must be worshipped in spirit and in truth. God transcends temples and buildings made with men's hands. We must understand that. I'm sure we do, but it's the starting point for a lot of things, that God is spirit. The tendency of the human heart is to carnalize God, it's to put God in a box, it's to bring God down to our dimensions, it's to humanize God, to make God like ourselves. As Psalm 50 says, God says, you thought that I was altogether like yourself, therefore I will rebuke you. God is not. God is Spirit, infinite, eternal, and unchangeable. And second, in connection with that, and in the same verse, it follows that those who worship him must worship in spirit and truth. Verse 24. God is spirit, and those who worship him must worship in spirit and in truth. That means, in other words, first of all, that you recognize the spiritual nature of God and that you communicate with him spirit to spirit. And for her and for everyone listening, that meant that even if you bring your own animal again, if you come to the altar and if you go through the right priesthood, if you stand when you should stand and sit when you should sit or kneel when you should kneel, your spirit must take to do with his spirit. There must be a communication. Deep must call unto deep. There's got to be a spiritual worship of God, a communication between your heart and the Lord if you're going to worship him at all. Nothing external will suffice. He may require it, it will not suffice. Because God is spirit, those who worship him must worship him in spirit. And he says, in truth, in truth, what does that mean? Obviously, it's something distinct from spirit. Sometimes people say that it means sincerely. You must worship him spiritually and sincerely. Now, I don't think that idea is absent from it. But the real emphasis is on properly as God requires. Worship him in the way in which he lays down, in the way that he prescribes, and according to what he approves of. 
In other words, well, we always need to remember that ever since the fall, there's a radical cleavage between us and God. It's not, it's not a small problem that can be got over by small things and by negotiations of some kind. The alienation is so profound and the cleavage is so vast that it can only be bridged by the chasm of the Son of God coming and dying in our place. But coming back to God is on his terms. It's through the blood of the Son. But it's always by following what he says. He lays down the terms of access always into his own presence. Whether it's once for all by faith or every single time we appear in the sanctuary. Here we are, before God, coming into his presence, doing what? What he asks us to do. No more, no less. If I was to suggest next week that we have a dramatic sketch here in the middle of our worship service where all the children are going to perform a play, could you tell me why that is not to be done? I I hope we can all say why that is not to be done. I hope we can all say and recognize that there are things too that are perfectly acceptable to be done outside of a worship service which must on no account be done inside a worship service. It's okay to sing a song of praise to God in certain situations. It's not okay in the middle of a worship service. Do we know why? Because God tells us exactly what to do in his presence and we're to do that no more and no less. And according to truth reminds us of that. Our worship of God must be spiritual and it must be according to what the Bible says. Now I'm sure... Uh, that there may be many Christians, of course there are, who do not have these things always right. And God deals with that in his own time and in his own way, but that's never a reason for us to let go of what we know being true and right. So God is spirit, number one. Second, to worship God, you must worship him spiritually and according to truth. The third thing Christ says, not in order, but the third truth as we're putting it here, is that God is actually seeking out that kind of worshipper. Verse 23 this time. The last part of verse 23, where it says that the Father is seeking such to worship him. Now, I must admit, in all the times I've read this passage, uh, these particular words never quite jumped out at me. Now, we're all like that. Uh, We all read the Bible and we miss things and sometimes we wonder, well, how didn't I see that before? And they seem so obvious when you find them. But I must admit that this didn't jump out at me in quite this way. That the Father seeks for such to worship them. See, at, at one level, we're looking at a woman seeking for God. But Christ is here saying that This God is seeking herself. God is seeking worshippers. He's seeking worshippers who know him, uh, who with respect and um, in a qualified manner understand him. People who have to do with him spiritually and intelligently, humbly, through Christ the Lord. He's seeking such. That might be news to you that God is seeking worshippers amongst ourselves. It was probably news to her. 
Isn't it a wonderful thing to think that God is seeking worshippers? He's seeking people to come into his throne room, into fellowship with himself, into this marvelous relation that's referred to in the Greek as koinonia, from which we get communion, where he shares himself with us and we share ourselves with him. He's looking for that. God is looking for that. I suppose that takes us right back to where we were at the beginning because it's not just the case that this woman is brought by God to the well, but this Savior is also brought by God to the same well. One tells us that a soul is looking for God. The other tells us that God is looking for the soul. He's looking for yourself. He's looking for yourself to be a worshiper. He's looking for yourself to come near to him in spirit and in truth. Isn't that a wonderful thought? So God seeks worshippers. But now the question is, well, how will this worshipper find God then? Or how will God find this worshipper? Well, that's not an insurmountable problem because the next thing he tells us is that salvation is of the Jews. In verse 22, you worship what you do not know. Let's leave that for the moment. We know what we worship. Let's leave that too and come to this. Because, he says, salvation is of the Jews. It's a marvelous statement, that. What it's telling us essentially is that even though the knowledge of God was always to some extent diffused through the world... God chose the Jewish people for a reason. He chose Abraham a long, long time ago. 4,000 years ago, he chose Abraham. And through Abraham and his descendants, God made himself known to the whole world. Particularly through his grandson Jacob, he gave the promise of the land of Canaan. Twelve tribes were to populate that land. And they were there on a missionary journey. They had a missionary task, I should say, put to their hand. Because the promised land, as you know, is still the centre of the earth. I've, I've often said to people from the pulpit that if you push the land mass on this globe together, as it originally was, before the flood, if you push it all together, you'll find Jerusalem pretty much at the heart of the earth's landmass. And when God gave them that land of promise, it wasn't just for themselves. It was for themselves to bring the knowledge of God to a world that was fallen and needy. And so God gave them scripture. God gave them the truth. God gave them the way of access back to to himself. Of course, people had defiled themselves with polytheism and with bloody human sacrifices and all kinds of sin and ignorance and they were to bring the knowledge of the truth to this fallen world. They had the Bible, the prophets and at the heart of everything there was this wonderful temple which I've often described as just a giant visual aid. Yes, they had their local places of worship just as we all do but the temple was supremely different. The temple was full of sights and sounds and smells The temple had things that the ordinary meeting places didn't have. 
It had Levites. It had gorgeous clothing. It had musical instruments. It, it had sacrifices being offered. And all these things were, I said visual aids, but actually oral aids as well, and even olfactory aids for the nose, because they were all reminders, teaching devices to lead the people to the Lord Jesus Christ. Everything in that temple was designed to teach the people how they would get to God in the Holy of Holies through a mediator, through a sacrifice. God was in Christ Jesus reconciling the world to himself. That is what is symbolized in the temple. And the Jews had that. And they may have closed themselves off as a people. They may have become isolationist and they may have become nationalistic. And of course they became cold and orthodox to the point where they not just wisely kept a distance from the Samaritans but wouldn't even talk to the Samaritans or share anything with them. But still, to them was given the word of salvation. What's more, in the fullness of time, it was to this people that the Saviour himself would come. It was from them that he would be born. And that was promised way, way back in time. Way, way back in the Old Testament. In fact, there's an interesting detail here in the Greek language. I'm not going to make a lot of it because I'm not sure if a lot should be made of it. But in verse 22, when Jesus says, You worship what you do not know, we know what we worship, for salvation is of the Jews. The fact is that in the Greek letter, the definite article is there. The salvation. For the salvation is of the Jews. One or two theologians from the past have wondered if that's a reference to the Messiah himself. The provision of salvation in the person of the Lord Jesus Christ. I don't really think so, but it may be included in there. But I think the thrust is that the message of salvation and the provision of salvation comes from and through the Jewish people. Now, on the basis of that, Christ draws two conclusions for this woman. First, he says in verse 22, or the second part of it, we know what we worship. We know what we worship. We've received the whole book of God and we accept it. Of course, the Lord doesn't mean by that that every Jew is saved, that every Jew is an intelligent spiritual worshiper. He doesn't mean that at all. But he does mean that the truth is there and that it is kept and honored. The priesthood that God appointed, the temple that God had built, to the specifications that God had commanded, with the worship ritual that God had appointed, says it's there. We know what we worship. We know the God of the Bible. We know that the whole Bible is through. You've taken five books and you've, you've cut and pasted your Bible, basically. You'll keep this and you'll get rid of that. But we know the whole word of God. We receive the law and the prophets and we come to God as God has appointed. That's fine. But then he says in verse 22, and these words catch your breath, you worship what you don't know. That's quite shocking really because um, I mentioned in the morning how gently the Lord uh, went round this woman's sin. But, but here he comes quite directly you know, to this and he says, 
I'm not going to pretend, he says, that what happens in Samaria is nearly there. I'm not going to pretend that it's an okay form of worship, and I'm not going to pretend that uh, we're looking for the same God and we're all travelling on a journey in the same direction. No, he says, you don't know what you're doing. You don't know what you're doing. You've lost the truth. You've created an alternative God, essentially, and an alternative way of worship. The fact of the matter is that God is who he is, and we can't beat about the bush when it comes to things like that. I am the way and the truth and the life, and no man comes to the Father but by me. And this tendency just to find the common good in all religions and to, and to try and create something new, well, it'll just be like the golden calf that popped out of the gold that had been melted in the days of Moses and Aaron. A golden calf, a, a God that's pleasing to everybody, but really not according to truth. And we need to call things out. There are things wrong. There are things wrong with Roman Catholicism. There are things wrong with Jehovah's Witnesses. There are things wrong with Mormonism. There are things wrong with the charismatic movement. Now, these things may be to varying degrees, and sometimes you just have to say, look, you've lost it. You've lost the Bible. In fact, you're not even sticking to the Bible, and that's part of the problem. Would the Samaritans have gone so far wrong had they kept the rest of the books? Had they accepted the prophets' denunciations of what had gone wrong in the past, would they have gone so far wrong? Probably not. But the Bible is being lost, disrespected. I still remember talking to a girl in Glasgow. I may have mentioned this before because it, it struck me so much that uh, she, couldn't, she couldn't come to church in time, so she just went to her local church. And she said afterwards that she, she was stunned that the Bible, at no point during the, well, can we call it a service? <coughs> can we call it a service? I don't know. Can you? Because at no point during it was the Bible actually opened or read. There was a, a little moral lesson. We've all heard these in different places. There was a little moral lesson uh, read at one point that, that again made no real reference to God or to Christ or anything. No Bible opened at no point at all. The end of the, again, so-called service, the minister sat down and said, oh, I forgot it's communion, he said. Those who are taking wine, queue up on that side. If you're taking grape juice, queue up on that side. Is that a service? Does that, does that retain the right to be called a service of God? A liturgia? A worship of God? Where the sacred scriptures are not open, not read, not preached? It may be in an elaborate church building, which may go back hundreds of years. And there may be people in there saying, oh, we've always been here. Well, get out then. Because it's lost the word of God. And if it's lost the word of God, it's lost everything. We need to value this word, to see it as precious, every part of it, and to retain it. Without it, we lose our access to God. And I want you to notice that Christ is quite direct about this. He says, don't go to Mount Gerizim. Because there they don't know what they worship. And sometimes we just have to recognize that that's the case, even if it's a fancy church building. In the 
church uh, newsletter this month, I, I say something at the beginning about the difference between an imperfect church and an unfaithful one. Let's all try and get a handle on that. It's really important. You won't find a perfect church. Absolutely not. But make sure the difference, you know the difference between a faithful one and an unfaithful one. A faithful one will get things wrong, but, well, read the article and think and pray about it. But you'll notice that the Lord doesn't leave things there either. How can he? He wants to save this woman's soul. Christ speaks in what he says to her about a coming hour that is marked out by two things. First of all, in verse 21, he tells her that there's an hour coming when you will neither on this mountain nor in Jerusalem worship the Father. Now, that would be astonishing news to her. It would also be astonishing to the Jews in the south who thought the the temple would last forever because they felt about their temple the way some people feel about their churches. It's here to stay forever. No, he says, they're both to be abolished. Not because the worship of God ceases, but because the worship of God is going to be universalized in a way that it hasn't been before. It's not going to be tied through a visual aid temple like it's been for however long. No, it's going to be let loose in meeting places, in gospel halls, in simple places of worship all through the world where people call upon the Lord in spirit and in truth. There shall be an altar built, as Isaiah says, in Egypt. And from one end of the earth to the other, they shall call upon the name of the Lord, worshipping him in spirit and in truth. No need for temples anymore. No need for priesthoods. No need for the musical instruments. No need for the altars of incense. Because we have it all in Christ Jesus, our Lord. This hour, Christ speaks of here, the hour is coming when you will neither on this mountain nor on Mount Zion worship the Father. That hour we know is tied to the hour of his suffering and of his death and of his resurrection and his ascension into glory. That's that's the series of events that's going to call time on the temple. I know that strictly speaking the temple stood for 40 years after the ascension of Christ, but 40 is your clue. 40 in the Bible is always testing, probation. I could bring dozens of examples literally before you. 40 years opportunity was given uh, to the Jewish people to recognize their Lord and Savior before he called time in the temple. In 70 AD, Titus, the Roman general, came and raised the temple to the ground, and it's never been rebuilt since. No sacrifice has been offered by a Jew since. Which is an astonishing thought. And ought to be to the Jews themselves. They have not offered a Levitical sacrifice for 2,000 years. Um, In all humility they really need to ask why that is. The answer is so plain to us. But as Paul says there is still a veil on their eyes when they read but the Lord will take away that veil but the Lord says essentially when this hour comes I will be lifted up and I will draw all men to myself I suppose in a way you know 
the Lord is also telling this woman that in a year or two, when you hear that the temple in Jerusalem, which, which I've said is a place that still holds the truth, when you hear it's flattened to the ground, don't be disturbed, because I've told you that that will be so. That's not because my worship is finished, but because something far greater and far wider takes place. Second, last of all, this coming hour, he says, is going to be marked out not just by the destruction of the temples, but by the proliferation of true worshippers. Um, in verse 21, the hour is coming when there's no more worship on the mountains. But then he says in verse 23, the hour is coming and now is when true worshippers will worship the Father in spirit and in truth. What does he mean by that? Well, it means that the real worship we're speaking of here, he says, is just going to grow exponentially. The knowledge of God and the worship of his name in a worldwide revival. And so it is. I mean, within a couple of years of this being said to the woman, well, three three to four years, what a wonderful thing took place. Pentecost. The Holy Spirit poured upon people. People and preachers going to Europe first, then Africa, and then into Asia. A Christ for all. True worshippers calling upon the Lord in numbers and with a depth and sincerity just not seen before. A Christ for all. Just as there's a Christ for you and a Christ for me. Here we are. I mean, where are we? Globally, nowhere. Let's admit that. We all talk about our islands as though they were the centre of the earth. They're very far from the centre of the earth. They're extremities. But the Lord has seen us. And the Lord has looked upon us. And the Lord has given us good things. And given us good things through many generations. How thankful we are for that. For that day that came. The hour that came. When there are true worshippers in spirit and in truth. But you'll notice that he doesn't just describe that hour as coming, but he says that that hour already is. Already is. Now, he doesn't say that about the, 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 the temples. He says the hour is coming when the temples will be destroyed. But this hour, in verse 22, when true worshippers will worship the Father in spirit and truth, he says already is. You notice that? The hour is coming and now is when the true worshippers will worship the Father in spirit and truth. What does he mean by that? What does he mean by saying it's here already? Well, in the wider context of the gospel, I think we can be quite clear about what it means. It's again to do with this ministry of John the Baptist, which our Lord valued so much, just as he valued the Baptist himself so much. Jesus said to the people, he said, from the the days of John the Baptist until now, he says, the kingdom of heaven is suffering violence and the violent seize it with force. They take it with force. On the face of it, that's a difficult text. But really, perhaps it's not so. What the Lord is saying is that People were a bit indifferent before John the Baptist came, but when John the Baptist came, there was no more indifference. He preached urgently. He preached zealously that the kingdom of heaven was now, 
and the need to repent was now, that the king was arriving now, and it was time to put their house in order. And he says, from that day, he says, there was a response. Throughout all of Judea, and even in the north in Galilee, there was such a response. People turning to the Lord in numbers. The kingdom was suffering violence, and the violent were taken by force. That is simply a way of saying that you can't pussyfoot your way into the kingdom of God. You can't just step gingerly into it. You've got to seize the initiative and take hold of it. Get hold of God while God is there to be gotten hold of. And that's what he meant by saying that all around me there are the stirrings, which are the fruit of John the Baptist's ministry. And that fruit lasted long. I mean, people think that the number of believers when Christ died was small. They were small in Judea and they were small in Jerusalem. They weren't small in Galilee or small in Samaria. And that was tied in to the Lord. So if you want to know God, he can be found. The eternal spirit, who can only be worshipped spiritually and according to truth, has revealed himself in history through the Jewish people and in God's holy word. And it's time to lay hold of him. Of course, closing with this, she says, <clears throat> yes, she says, that's right. When the Messiah comes, he'll tell us everything. To which Christ says, yes, indeed, he will. That's what I've been doing, because I am he. At that point, she leaves her water pot and she goes into the city. It's an interesting detail that she leaves the water pot. I suppose it's a detail recorded by someone who saw it, as of course John did. But he notes it and he records it. The water pot at this point, you'll remember, wasn't empty, it was full. Why does she leave it? Well, there's more important things in her mind, it's as simple as that. She needs to go back, she needs to tell people who she has met because she believes that he's telling the truth. Certainly the way she says it to the people, she says, I found someone who's told me everything I've ever done. Could this be the Christ? It's not so much that she's wondering, she wants them to ask the question. And it's interesting that their hearts are prepared because out they go to meet the man beside the well. I think leaving the water pot is a kind of visual aid itself, really. It's a kind of way of saying, God saying to us that, well, it's all to do with water again, you see. The, the water pot just represents the well and what she had been talking about in the first place. That's gone now. What matters now is what really matters. It's the drink that the Lord is giving to her, which she's just beginning to understand. I think these things need one more visitation, perhaps next Sabbath evening, as the Lord leads. Let's stand up for call this evening. O oh Lord, it is good for us to know that uh, you seek worshippers who will worship in spirit and in truth. You don't desire uh, formal worshippers who merely observe the externals, but those who draw near in heart. And Lord, may we all be of that number. Open our eyes to our own need and uh, to see the sufficiency of Christ to meet it, a worthy Lord and Saviour, uh, one to be admired. How great the gift, 
how great the giver of the gift. O Lord, make us participants in eternal life, one with another. In the Saviour's name we pray. Amen. Let's close singing in Psalm 122. One hundred and twenty-two. We know the psalm well because uh, David begins it by looking forward to going to worship in God's house. That's very often a sign when God is changing our own hearts that suddenly we want to be there. Perhaps there was a time when we wanted to avoid it, but the psalm closes with a prayer. Pray that Jerusalem, the house of God, may have peace and felicity, joy. Let them that love thee and thy peace have still prosperity. Therefore I wish that peace may still within thy walls remain, and ever may thy palaces prosperity retain. And for my friends and brethren's sakes, peace be in thee, I'll say, and for the house of God our Lord. I'll seek thy good always. Let's stand to sing the last three stanzas.